Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare what's up this your boy little duval and check out my podcast conversations with unk on the black effect podcast network each and every tuesday conversations with unk podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness unlike my work on stage i tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement yet remind folks to never forget to laugh every tuesday listen to conversation with unk hosted by Lil duval on the black effect podcast network iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is the best of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. Let me bring in Kelly Stewart. She is out in Vegas with us. And it's always intriguing when you go out to Las Vegas, and I've gotten to spend a decent amount of time out there. Most people in Las Vegas are not from Las Vegas. Kelly, you are from Kansas. You went to Kansas State. How in the world did you find your way out to Las Vegas to become a professional gambler in the world of sports? Man, that is such a long story for me to tell and bore your viewers with. Um, But I'll give you the short version. Moved out here after graduating from Kansas State. Always have loved to gamble. Always have loved sports. And uh, somehow I kind of got into doing a little bit of both. Uh, Our good buddy Todd Furman actually found me on Twitter and was like, who is this girl? Um, I hit a nice little parlay, and next thing you know, everything kind of blew up in my face and uh, said, maybe I can make some money doing this, and it's been a fun ride. I mean, it is funny how you said when you introduced me, she is a girl. I, I still get that on Twitter. You know, seven, eight years later, wait, are you a real person? Are you sure you're not a guy? I'm like, I think I've done enough stuff now to prove that I actually – you know, somewhat know what I'm talking about on time to time and uh, that I am real and I and I do have uh, female body parts. <laughs> it is funny that you have to say that because there have been on the internet a few people who pretended to be girls, I mean really, uh, on the internet, and then they get busted and you find out that it's just a dude. And, it, you know, you think about the degree of trust that everybody puts into, like, Twitter and social media in general, but there is a trust factor associated with it, right? Like, we're all assuming that people are claiming, at least in some way, to be what they are, and a couple of women are not really women, and so that's the first question I have to ask. And the other thing is, and you see it, the the, the gambling universe is so dominated by men. How often do you come into contact with other women who spend as much time gambling as you do on sports? 
You know, that's an interesting question because I, I always get, well, wouldn't you love to have more women? Of course, I'd love to have more women that are knowledgeable and know um, actually how to bet on sports and how to give out picks and to, to be able to sit there and hold a, you know, a great conversation about a game. Um, but you don't find it very often. I know there, I know there are women out there that do. Um, but as far as like the Twitter universe goes, you know, I remember a couple different times, so many, uh, we'll call it, uh, women have challenged me and I'm like, okay, like next thing we're on Vegas, let's meet. And next thing you know, it's a, it's a ghost town and nobody ever really kind of wants to do it. So you're right. Unfortunately, I'm sure that's the reason why I get so much grief is because 90% of the time it's, it's a guy, it's a boyfriend, it's a somebody hiding behind a, a, a pretty face. Well, we're talking to Kelly Stewart. She's at Kelly in Vegas. I'd encourage you to go follow her on Twitter. One of the reasons, many reasons that I like you is you're combative and you're fearless and you say exactly what you think uh, regardless. Um, and so in the gambling space, is that good or bad? Like, because you've been on a run. I mean, you've had tremendous amounts of success. You can tell people the contest that you won, which is a massive uh, big-time event. Uh, but, you know, everybody who's in gambling – and gambles on sports, whether you do it for a living or whether you do it for fun, has had a run where they thought, man, I can't lose, and then they've had a run also where they thought, man, I can't win. How stressful is watching games when you make a living based on giving out picks? You know, it is very stressful. I tell people this all the time. You've got to be prepared for the roller coaster ride. And for a long time, I, I did. I worked at nightclubs out here in Vegas, and I did other things. Um, but once you fully commit to doing it full time, I mean, it is, You've got to have a tremendous amount of discipline, and you've got to understand when you manage your bankroll, it's going to be okay. You've got to take the good with the bad. Yeah, of course, like you were just mentioning, the, the contest I won um, was probably my best NFL stretch. I, I went 14-1 and one a couple of years ago and won the uh, Westgate Superbook. Uh, they have the uh, – Mini contest, uh, sorry, right? The mini contest. The super contest has a three-week contest called the mini contest, and that is what I won. And, and I haven't won – 14 out of 15 NFL games since. You know, it's, it's nice to have, you know, a three-in-one weekend and not complain about it at all. But to go on a stretch like that, win a little bit of extra cash on top of your bets um, in a contest makes it so much more fun. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it is an absolute roller coaster ride, and, and you have got to take the good with the bad and know that it does come back around, but everything essentially reverts back to the mean. So if you can make your little profits every month, and get out unscathed, life is good. We're talking to Kelly Stewart. She's at Kelly in Vegas. Now, I know you gamble a lot. We had you on the Outkick show to talk about the NCAA tournament, and I know you gamble a lot on college basketball and certainly on college football and the NFL. As you just mentioned, you had a 14-1 and stretch where you won uh, the mini contest at the biggest contest that exists in Vegas right now, season long, out at the, uh, the Westgate Sportsbook. But when you look at the NHL and the NBA playoffs starting, uh, you know they, they started last night for the NHL. The NBA is going to be starting this weekend. Do you enjoy betting the NHL or the NBA in the playoff season when you know everybody's going to be going their hardest? Or is it a sport that you tend to avoid? How would you break down these playoffs when, frankly, there's not a lot of other sports going on? I mean, there's nothing else going on. I actually have told people on several occasions, I do not handicap baseball. They all know that because there are so many brilliant minds out here. So, yeah, sure, I'll tail some of my buddies here to get myself a little bit of action during the summertime. Uh, but my buddy Alex Smith, actually, I talked to him yesterday. I said, hey, listen, I'm going to be doing Clay's show. I love hockey. It's one of my newfound loves. 
in the sports world, but there are so many guys that follow it so much better than me. So I gave Alex a call. I said, listen, we need to make some futures bets here. We need to have a little bit of fun with these NHL playoffs. As you know, um, the Las Vegas Golden Knights have just taken everybody by storm out here. Everybody loves them. Um, but there's a reason why, and that's because they just went on a crazy run, won a ton of games, won lots of the Pacific Division. Uh, but I'm a little nervous about this Kings matchup. I know the Kings are a little bit older here. Um, man, it is, it's, it's a little scary. My girlfriend is a Vegas-born girl, so this is her first real team she's ever got to have um, is – like a little nervous. I said, don't be surprised if this one goes to seven games. So I will probably be staying off in that game. Um, but, you know, he did mention you. It was funny. He sent me an email after I talked to him on the phone. He's like, oh, you know, Clay has uh, the Caps as his dark horse pick. Anyway, he actually is going against you. He likes the blue jackets. So you, I'll, I'll let him debate you on Twitter on that one. Um, but as far as Betting NHL goes, I, I take a little bit of time and, and, and look at the games, but ultimately it comes down to the guys who know a lot more than me in this sport um, and kind of comes down to where how much money am I willing to lose, how much money am I willing to win at um, on a futures bet, and, and I may have one or two just to give me some excitement going into the NHL playoffs. What about the NBA? We debated the other day, and I'm curious what you think about this in general whether it's better for the NBA if LeBron James loses early in the playoffs. Like, it would be a stunner beyond belief if LeBron James and the Cavs lost in the first round of the playoffs, right? It would still be a stunner if they lost in the second round of the playoffs. A little bit less of a stunner if they lost, let's say, in the Eastern Conference Finals. But all of that would be a surprise because I think a lot of people are penciling LeBron and the Cavs in the finals because they've been there so many years in a row with LeBron James's teams. Is it good or bad for the NBA in your mind if LeBron loses before the finals? You know, it's interesting you say that because Vegas, of course, has the Cavaliers um, minus 110 to win the Eastern Conference, so they sure seem to think that they're going to be in the finals. Do I think it's bad for basketball? I mean, let's put it this way. I don't consider him necessarily this way, but I would say that most of people younger than me probably do. I grew up, Michael Jordan was you know, the pinnacle basketball player. I mean, Larry Bird was up there, a few other guys, but let's be honest, Michael Jordan was the man in the 90s. So I kind of think that several, I mean, I would probably say a higher percent of the population that I would consider think that LeBron is the new Michael Jordan, so to speak. So I do think it would probably be bad for the NBA. I mean, what does the NBA want? They want people to watch the games. They want to sell jerseys. They want to sell tickets. And LeBron is... Like I said, kind of, so to speak, I don't necessarily agree with this, but I guarantee most 25-year-olds would probably think that he is the modern-day Michael Jordan. So I think it would be in the NBA's best favor to have him probably versus the Warriors again, unfortunately. So what are you thinking in the Western Conference? Uh, there seems to be a, uh, a general expectation, I would put myself in this camp, that we're going to get – Rockets against Warriors, and the overall health of the Warriors is a big part of whether or not they are going to be able to have the success that they've had the past couple of years in the Western Conference. Are you buying into the hype train behind the Houston Rockets, who are going to finish with the best record overall in the NBA, or are you going to stick with the Warriors as the favorites in the Western Conference? You know, that's the thing. The Rockets locked up that one seed really early. They have been playing out of their minds, look really great. Um, And going back to your whole thing we were just talking about, they are actually the same price here in Vegas to win the Western Conference as the worst. Both teams minus 110. And then the Thunder comes in at 
28 to 1. I mean, it looks like it's going to be between those two, and Vegas doesn't even think it's close. Um, I'd like to see the Rockets get in there, but that's because I'm kind of always the one cheering for the underdog. And even though Vegas doesn't think the Rockets are the underdog, the seeding doesn't think the Rockets are the underdog. In the minds of the viewers, the Rockets are the underdog. So I, I like that, and I'd love to see it be Rockets versus Raptors. Give it, give us something new. I mean, considering Joel Embiid might be out for another two to four weeks, I'd still like to see the 76ers get in there just because they've been so terrible for so long. And they've got 15 straight wins. All right, uh, last question for you. You've been out in Vegas for a while now. At Kelly in Vegas, go follow her on Twitter. Uh, She is uh, fearless, she is entertaining, and she'll hopefully make you some money. But when you look at uh, people come and they ask me this question all the time, I'm going out to Vegas, which sports book would you uh, encourage me to go spend my day watching sports in? You're a professional, you've tried them all out. Where would you tell them to go? You know, my favorite sports book is the Westgate Superbook, and I don't just say that because I'm good buddies with people over there. They they take way better care of people. I get a complaint every week on Twitter. Well, if you have a $500 bet, why aren't you getting drink tickets? The Westgate gives you plenty of drink tickets. The sports book's smoke-free. They have tons of huge new screens, plenty of places to sit. I, I really enjoy it better than everywhere else. Like I said, if you have a, you know, a couple hundred dollar bet, you're getting some drink tickets. You don't have to worry about it. You can have a good time. And they actually have this nice little bar right outside the sports book. You can sit there if you're a complete degenerate and love to play video poker as well. You can still see the games. Um, like I said, it, it is by far one of the nicest sports books as well as best customer service. Uh, outstanding stuff as always Kelly Stewart go follow her at Kelly in Vegas thanks for waking up early with us enjoy the Golden Knights run now that Las Vegas has an official team in the playoffs and one of the big sports leagues and we will talk to you I'm sure again sometime soon All right, thanks Clay be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app John am I being a pussy willow first question for you Am I being a pussy willow here because I'm looking at the roster of NHL games and I'm starting off, even though you're a Major League Baseball expert, you're also an NHL expert. My uh, Nashville Predators play against Colorado Avalanche at 9.30 Eastern, 8.30 my time, and I'm already doing the math. Like, am I going to be able to stay awake long enough for this thing? And I'm even contemplating, should I take a nap? What's your advice? Do I just go to bed not knowing what happened or do I fight through it and come in early in the morning for the show? Uh, bleary-eyed. Clay, it's game one, which means that uh, if the Preds are as good as I'm sure you and I both believe they're going to be, uh, this is the first night of many. Uh, My advice would be to catch the first period, uh, see how you're feeling about that, and and probably call it an early night. Uh, You could do the the DVR, all these different uh, tools we've got in modern times. I, I would say to save your really uh, you're really late nights, really early mornings for later on in the playoffs because, of course, being in the Western Conference, oh. you're going to have some of those 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern starts at some point in time during this uh, playoff run. So It's brutal. They save the energy. This is, this is a good time. People say, like, I get a lot of questions because we start the show obviously very early, uh, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern, 5 to 8 Central, 4 to 7 Mountain, 3 to 6 Pacific. And the toughest time of year is when the NHL and the NBA playoffs start because there are late-night games every single day. Football season is somewhat tough because you got late-night Monday night football and now Thursday night football and everything else that you have to be on top of, but it's not every night. 
every night of the NHL and the NBA, there are a lot of you out there who know exactly what I'm talking about. You're trying to follow your favorite team or your favorite teams. I need all the games to be like what happened last night with Pittsburgh, where it's like a 7 nothing <laughs> blowout, and you never even have to worry about it at all. Like You're like, okay, this one's decided. I'm going to go to bed. Because, man, some of these late nights, and you string them together back-to-back and everything else, it's tough. So well, the, and, and it's the emotional investment, too, Clay. And, yeah. and that's something where I, I love both baseball and hockey so much, and I'm really, really fortunate that I get a chance to work in, in, in both sports. Obviously more in baseball, but still I get my hockey fix at different times during the year. And, and just for, from covering that Western Conference final last year, you, you just you see the utter and complete emotional investment by the players in every single game. And, and my the, the, the more times that I cover it, uh, the, the Seneca playoffs, the more I have this abiding appreciation for what they do. Uh, the, the blocking shots, throwing themselves in front of 100-mile-an-hour slap shots, with when knowing that your entire body is not protected by gear, a lot of it is, but not all of it, and still it hurts. Trust me. I mean, it, it's still uh, the, if if a puck hits your shin guard, it's still gonna it's still gonna smart a while, and it can still injure you. In fact, so there's there's a lot uh, that goes on in terms of the sacrifice they make and just the atmosphere, the intensity. Uh, it it is something really unique, and uh, it's it's a fantastic time of year. Also, it's it's long. I mean, baseball our playoffs are are a month long. Uh, in the NHL, it's two months. Two months. The Stanley Cup won't be awarded until basically right about this time in June. I mean, it is a two-month march and uh, truly a test of wills. And, and uh, I, I, I said before, I'm on record already, Clay, this week. I said, Predators over the Maple Leafs in the Stanley Cup final. Let's see if I'm right. That would be old money against new money, right? Um, even though the hockey teams in Canada have not won the Stanley Cup, I believe, in a while. You'd probably know the year better than I would. Since By the 1993, way, 1993, the uh, Montreal Canadiens. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a the, crazy uh, stat, Los right? Angeles Kings, 93, Clay. When you consider how much Canada loves hockey, I mean, Canada loves hockey like the South loves college football, right? Yeah. I mean, like it is the lifeblood of the region. It's a very good analogy. Uh, can you imagine going all the way back to 1993 if, if right now, and for instance, in the South, no uh, SEC team or no ACC team with predominant Southern roots like Clemson or Florida State, whatnot, had never won a title since all the way back to 1993? It would be like a, a regional obsession. I can't even imagine in Canada that that streak is, is, is really pretty amazing. And, and not just that, to also have several of the teams that have won Stanley Cups, right? I mean, Carolina or uh, the Hurricanes. I mean, the fact that they have won a uh, a championship. I mean, there are a lot of different teams that really, like, hockey is not the lifeblood or even, like, the second or third or fourth most popular sport in those states. It has to feel like a slap in the face. It, it probably does for some. I, I think also, uh, and I, I've made this point to, to my friends in Canada, too, um, that in general, uh, the, the existence, let's say, of the Arizona Coyotes is the reason why the Maple Leafs had their best player. Austin Matthews is from Scottsdale, and uh, he fell in love with the sport by going to games there. And and so hockey's uh, foray into the Sun Belt, if you will, has actually, in, in a very direct way, delivered to the Maple Leafs their best player, which I like to keep pointing out sometimes. Uh, but, uh, yes, it is uh, culturally, um, it, it's hard to really find, Clay, a... a 
a sport and a country more closely intertwined than hockey in Canada. Uh, the when when I watch, and I'm lucky here in, in Michigan, uh, growing up here, that I can watch a lot of the Canadian coverage. Yes. Uh, when 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 the, when hockey night in Canada comes on, they are not speaking to hockey fans. They are speaking to the entire country. Uh, when uh, when uh, the, the tragedy occurred last week uh, with the Humboldt Broncos in, in Saskatchewan, with the, the tragedy where all those young men lost their lives in the bus accident. That affected every single Canadian, every yes. single one, because they just intuitively know the lifestyle of riding the riding the buses. They know that that could have easily been their community, and so the whole country is heartbroken. It's just it's a very authentic way to 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 appreciate a sport, and uh, just the, the 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 ability to to watch the Canadians in in these moments uh, is really. It, I think it's it, it gives us deep insight into that, and and uh, it, it makes the experience. Very, very heartfelt, I think, to watch them go through the playoffs. So, I, Clay, as, as something of a, I'm close to Canada up here in Michigan. So, I, I, at some point in time, I'd like to see the the, the Canadian team win it again uh, and, and give the country another champion. Yeah, there's no doubt at all about uh, about that. We are talking with John Morosi. He is uh, with us uh, this morning, obviously, as we break down as he is every single Tuesday. Major League Baseball, usually, but the NHL playoffs have begun. Uh, and it's interesting you mentioned that. My wife is from uh, basically Canada. She's from uh, Michigan, near where you are. Um, and uh, and she would talk about that, too. I mean, the, the extent to which hockey, not only American hockey with the Red Wings, obviously, but also getting those Canadian stations and being able to uh, to pay attention to that sport that they love so deeply. And that Scottsdale uh, comment that you made uh, strikes me really interestingly here personally because the Nashville Predators have done a great job of outreach to young kids. My my seven year old played this past fall in their uh, in their like you know kid predator uh, you right. know league or whatever it was. And this is uh, kind of putting into perspective how little of an interest in in hockey I've ever had. They they got a bag, a duffel bag full of all their all their gear to kind of get them to come out on the ice and play and everything else. And when I opened that duffel bag, you know, you got that as part of signing up. I had no idea how to put the pads and all the gear on him. I mean, legitimately no idea because I've never in my life ever put on gear to try to be a hockey player. And it's the first time he's ever played a sport where, you know, I've played everything at least somewhat or watched. I sat there and I was like, oh, my God, I have no idea how to put all this on. So, I mean, and there are a lot of people out there who certainly live in the South like me who would have never grown up playing hockey that have, uh, you know, kind of gotten interested in the sport because they have expanded in, in regions where, frankly, it's even hard to keep ice. It's a great point, Clay. And, that's, and that's, that, that sort of unfamiliarity that many people have around the country with, with, with the gear is indicative of, of one barrier that hockey has to getting kids involved uh, because you need to have equipment, which obviously is expensive because you grow out of it every year or two. Um, and, and just that, that access of getting over the hurdle of, of getting the gear, being able to get to the rink, the, the ice times are not always the easiest for, for working parents. And so the commitment, that's why the, the, the passion, when you, are, when you are a hockey person, it, it means that you have bought into the whole culture. Uh, it means more than just playing the sport because, you know, you can, uh, growing up playing baseball, for me, you could go to school, then walk, walk across, go to baseball practice, and go home. Hockey, you, you're often going to a civic rink, municipal rink, and, and you're, you're going at different times, and, and the, the gear has a very specific pungent smell, which you're probably learning about, that, that fills up your car. It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, very, uh, it's a very unique culture. Uh, it's, it, it, I'm not going to call it a niche sport because it's much bigger than that, but it is, it is a culture unto itself, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful game, and, 
and uh, it's a great time of year to celebrate it. I know you have to get out with us, but la- one quick question for you in baseball. Um, yes. Uh, Shohei Otani, can he keep it up? Yes. Uh, maybe not at quite this level, but he has shown to me that the, the pitching is there, that the, the, the stuff, his ability to make pitches, command multiple pitches, is there. And offensively, he now has confidence. He made a very key adjustment uh, late in spring training to really get his foot down sooner and, and help his bat to get through the zone against major league pitching. So I think Shohei Otani, uh, I think he's going to be an all-star this year, Clay. He could, he could coast for the next couple months and probably still make the all-star game because we are all just so fascinated by him, and, and he's really put the Angels on the national map in a way that perhaps even Mike Trout uh, has not been able to do. Outstanding stuff as always. We'll talk to you next week. Good luck staying up late for all these NHL games. <laughs> and you as well, Clay. Thanks so much, my friend. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app. Bring in now uh, Jennifer Heil, who was the producer of maybe the greatest titled uh, documentary of all time, Cocaine Hippos. <laughs> I'm sold the minute I hear that. Jennifer, uh, thanks for joining us here. Uh, Thursday edition Outkick the Coverage, uh, waking up early in the morning with us. When did you first hear about this story? And for people out there who might have missed it before, Pablo Escobar, Colombian drug lord, had a zoo of sorts at his palatial compound in Colombia and included were four hippos, three female hippos, one male hippo. When he was, uh, basically, when his reign came to a close there in the narco-trafficking era, the hippos were too big to move. They later broke out of the compound and have since reproduced and now live in the rivers of Colombia in this area. When did you first hear about it? And take us into the process by which you made this film. Oh, great. Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show, and this was such a great uh, film to work on. I'm always happy to have an excuse to chat about it. Uh, I found out about uh, the Cocaine Hippos um, back in, let's see, probably eight years ago now. And I produced a lot of documentaries for National Geographic on wildlife. I'm especially interested in human um, wildlife conflict and, and how, how societies navigate that. And I was reading up on hippos and quite honestly was looking at them in Africa and, uh, you know, was interested in developing a film and was speaking to a hippo specialist and kind of looking for my angle, how, you know, what was going to be my way into the story of, of hippos. And towards the end of um, an interview I did, uh, a, a hippo specialist um, uh, actually in San Diego said, you know, also there's these, um, I mean, there's Pablo Escobar's hippos. I don't know if that would interest you. <laughs> It was just, you know, as a journalist, it was like one of those, like, you know, record shop moments. Like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you know, I just, I couldn't believe it. Um, and I started digging from there, and there had not been um, a film made on them. And the more I learned, the more sort of preposterous and fascinating the story was. And uh, and so I convinced National Geographic Wild to let me, um, uh, you know, take a film crew and try to go find these animals. And uh, find them we did. What's amazing about this story is you hear a lot of urban legends in any business, but certainly (laughs) in, I would imagine, your business where you're doing documentaries and people are trying to pitch you on wild and outlandish ideas and they sound so sexy. When you heard Pablo Escobar had hippos and they had escaped in Colombia, did you believe it initially or did you think, oh, that has to be an urban legend that can't be true? When did you start to understand, wait a minute, this is a real story as opposed to just an urban legend? 
Yeah, you know, that's such a good observation because it is so true. You hear things and you start digging and you realize it is just a myth. Uh, this one was interesting, um, I think, right from the start because the woman I was interviewing, you know, is a PhD. She spent time among hippos. So it was a credible source, but she had never gone to Columbia. She didn't know these animals, so there was still the chance it was a myth. So I started digging around online. And when I realized it was credible, it took some digging, but, uh, and we can talk more about this later, but at a certain point, um, the Colombian government did try to kill one of the cocaine hippos. It had become a threat in one of the local communities. They shot the animal, and it caused a huge furor in Colombia, which caught the Colombian government off guard, caught a lot of people off guard. And it did make news um, in South America. It didn't really... Uh, make news so much here in North America, but I was able to find articles on that. And they, you know, showed, you know, I got to see a photo of one of the hippos and I thought now, whoa, okay, maybe this is, maybe this is real. Um, And then I was able to, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I, 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 so I want to take you back right now to Pablo Escobar. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are familiar with Pablo Escobar. I feel like a lot of people probably who are listening to us on the younger side probably remember him almost more from the Entourage uh, episodes where Vince was going to play Pablo <laughs> Escobar, I mean, uh, in in the Entourage HBO television show. But for people right. who are older and are listening to us, they remember that era of sort of cocaine's rise. And maybe a lot of people even uh, are familiar with Pablo Escobar now through Narcos, which is obviously an insanely popular uh, show that is on mm-hmm. Netflix and kind of takes you into that Latin American drug war and drug culture. Let's talk about Pablo Escobar for just a moment. When did you become aware that Pablo Escobar even had this compound, even had all of these animals? And when you arrived on that scene and that site, what is the remainder of Pablo Escobar's compound? Because this is unbelievable, but in modern dollars, Pablo Escobar's yeah. wealth is 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 estimated to have reached thirty billion dollars. That's billion with a B. And right. people may remember also from having watched. There was a great thirty for thirty uh, called the two Escobars uh, about the Colombian soccer team. Pablo Escobar would just fly in like the Colombian soccer team to scrimmage at his compound. I mean, this thing was unbelievable. Right. What does it look like now? Well, it's one of the many bizarre twists of this story because, of course, you know, as you said, he was, you know, this incredibly notorious drug lord in the 80s. He was said to have controlled 80% of Colombia's cocaine. He had this outrageous wealth that you've just mentioned. So one of the things that he used that wealth for was to build Hacienda Nopolis, which was um, sort of his hacienda. Uh, it's about, you know, 60 miles east of Medellin. And it's a really... Um, strange place. I think in, in his, you know, at his zenith in the 80s, you know, he built a Jurassic Park. There's all the, and there's still there, these huge dinosaur sculptures that are sort of bizarre. Uh, and he also built himself a private zoo. And of course, that's where the hippos lived. And now when you go back, um, especially knowing, you know, Escobar was such a violent criminal um, and it's such a dark and difficult chapter in Colombia's history. And now when you go, it's a tourist park. It's really bizarre. Um, you could drive right into Hacienda Nopolis, and you know the Jurassic Park's still there. Um, a lot of uh, you know a lot of the animals um, are still there, or the you know some of the um, animal pens have been you know filled again with the animals that are a little easier to keep. You know, there's there's no you know they're not bringing in elephants and other crazy things like that in the way Escobar did. 
Um, but you can go there, and then bizarrely, you see the animals, you see the huge dinosaur sculptures, and then, you know, very understandably, they've, they've made kind of a, a little outdoor museum in one of the bombed-out buildings where it shows you some of Escobar's history. Um, so it's really just a strange place, and especially strange that you can just kind of drive right in now. Um, I would love to actually go to visit this place. Um, And Jennifer, uh, we're talking to Jennifer Heels, uh, Hiles. She is the the producer of Cocaine Hippos, which uh, aired on National Geographic Wild, and I believe is up online. People can track it down. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who want to watch this when they finish hearing our conversation. But I want to ask you this, uh, as someone who's done a lot of research, I was in London last summer with my family, and I toured the Tower of London. And I was fascinated to see that great wealth seems to attract in some way exotic animals. And what I mean by that is when they lived in the Tower of London, one of the things that the king did to demonstrate, I guess, the scope of his power and also just his ability to control things that other people could not was bring in exotic animals. So they had tigers, they had lions, they had all these different animals that they would bring to London and they literally kept them in the the Tower of London. If you've ever been to London, it's an old castle right in the center of uh, of London, basically now that you can still go tour. It's amazing. But there are all these pens where they kept all these animals: tigers, lions, wow. hippos, even like all these crazy animals that obviously did not wow. exist in the in the kingdom. And we talked about this. It seems like drug lords are really attracted to exotic animals in general. You know, when you hear about all of these different uh, drug lords, it seems like they always seem to have animals. Is in this, in your mind, I know I'm asking you to psychoanalyze them a little bit here, but is this sort of a uh, of a degree, when you see that Pablo Escobar compound, it's like he was trying to bring the entire world to that hilltop in Colombia, right? To demonstrate his ability to control everything I'm just going to go grab hippos, and I'll have lions and tigers and everything else. And then you also open it up. There's a Robin Hood element to Pablo Escobar where he wanted to allow the poorer Mm -hmm. people in his community to have access to some of the finer things that he could bring them. But psychoanalyzing him, I mean, this is a fascinating decision, right, to just decide that you're going to have your own Noah's Ark, so to speak, on this compound Mm -hmm. that you create in Colombia. Well, I think it's such a good observation, and I think it's very true. I mean, imagine someone like um, Escobar, at the height of his wealth, he could have anything in the world, right? So I think there is a draw for people like that. What What is the thing that no one else could possibly do? And you can imagine the appeal. Uh, you know, no one knows quite how he got these animals, right? It wasn't done on the up and up, but there are stories, you know, that he chartered planes, you know, that landed at Hacendanopolis and, and elephants and hippos came off. That's uh, you amazing. know, who could do that? It's it's amazing. I mean, it's so preposterous. It's so amazing. And of course there is a glamour to these animals, right? You know, to a hippopotamus, to an elephant. These are big, powerful animals you can imagine for someone like him. You know, the appeal of that, the draw of that is to say that he controls them. And, you know, for the film I tracked down um one of Pablo's personal photographers, um, Edgar Jimenez, and it was incredible. We, you know, uh, our local fixer helped us find him, and we went into, um, you know, a neighborhood of Medellin, and, and we were able to meet Edgar. And he actually spoke to me a lot about what it was like during that era. So he went to Hacendanopolis with Pablo Escobar, you know, expressly to take photos of Escobar and his family and the animals. He showed me these you know, incredible photos of 
as Gabar, looking about as sort of relaxed and happy as you, you can see him, you know, among these animals. And a really incredible story when Escobar finally went into hiding. Um, Edgar talked about getting uh, calls from Escobar and saying, you know, go photograph my animals. I want to take the photos with me. So he had such a connection to these animals that even when he was in hiding and couldn't visit them, um, he asked for photographs of them and, and wanted to know how these, how these animals are doing. So he seemed to have a real draw to them. Um, you know, that, that lasted right till the end of his life. We're talking to Jennifer Heil, and she is the producer of Cocaine Hippos. She uncovered the story of Pablo Escobar's hippos. And you, there's there's a, a certain level of, like, master of the universe, obviously. And, mm-hmm. and, and certainly we have a guy like that who's in the presidency right now. And certainly there are a lot of countries that have uh, presidents like this and leaders like this. And I think that's what Pablo Escobar fa- fashioned himself but isn't that amazing to think about him having his own airstrip and flying a plane somewhere to fill it with hippos mm-hmm. and elephants to bring it back? And, and it's also interesting to think about, I was using that as an example, the kings in, in ancient times in, uh, in England doing this and how they would have tra- traveled with those uh, animals uh, you know, on, obviously, boats, bringing them from all over the world. But it, even, even in the 1980s when Escobar was there, a lot of kids in Colombia would have never had access, right, to know that these kind okay. of animals existed. And so there was a benevolent sense of bringing these kids in and letting them be able to expose themselves or be exposed to these animals. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it is one of the sort of many extraordinary contradictions of Escobar because, it, of course, yeah, there was so much violence associated uh, with his enterprise, but there was a Robin Hood element, and there did seem, you know, certainly was trying to reach out to people in the community, provide things that they couldn't have otherwise had. And he did make this private zoo sort of available at his discretion, but to, you know, to people in the community, to, to children who, um, as you very rightly say, would never have otherwise had access um, to these animals. And it's fascinating uh, what you're saying about animals um, in the Tower of London, you know, just to kind of think about these parallels. And I think, you know, even today with all the exposure we have to wildlife all over the world, you know, hippos, um, you know, giraffes. I mean, these creatures are so extraordinary. They're, you know, they're so fascinating. So, um, you know, you can sort of imagine how kings and queens or, or a drug king like uh, Pablo Escobar, you know, would become fascinated. And once they had the resources to do anything, you know, would want to, you know, bring these creatures in. Jennifer, I got a question for you. Uh, I, I am curious how much you believe that the zoo at itself was more of, yes, there was a Robin Hood element to Escobar, but do you also think that it was a good cover as well to try and get the women, to try and get the children on his side to look like this great humanitarian, this Robin Hood, which would help him to cover up all of the other stuff that he was doing. Like, I don't know how much of it was altruism yes. or how much of it he'd love the area and how much of it was actually, no, I'm going to do this to make it look like I'm Walter White and I'm doing this for my family because I'm about to die of cancer and how much of it was, yeah, I'm also really a terrible human being. Yeah, I, I mean... Everyone has a different take on this. I, you know, I lean towards the latter. I mean, this was, you know, the terrible human being side. Right? I mean, this was such a violent criminal. You know, tortured people. He killed people. It's a very dark. You know, Escobar's history is a very dark history. And when I was in Colombia, you know, yeah, people talked to me about just the, you know, the reign of terror um, that was experienced under him. So, you know, the Robin Hood element. You know, how much of that was real is, you know, is difficult to assess and sort of difficult. You know, to believe in for me, although certainly Escobar was 
you know, he came from slums, he came from a very poor family. So maybe some of that element was there. I suspect with these animals, it was much more about what he could own, the status of them, the power they projected. We're talking to Jennifer uh, Hiles, who is the producer of Cocaine Hippos on National Geographic Wild. Do we know, okay, let's get to the hippos themselves, which are still in Columbia. Do we know how they found their way to the waterways? Did they break out of this compound? Were they released? I know they moved a lot of the animals in the wake of Pablo Escobar's reign of terror and or his reign in general ending. Do we know how the animals got to the rivers and waterways? Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, we do know um, more or less how that happened. So when Escobar was killed in the early 90s, Hacienda Napoles gradually fell into disrepair. With the animals in the private zoo, the elephant, for example, was moved um, to a zoo in, uh, in Medellin. You know, other animals were killed. The hippos were just too difficult. You know, they, they can be dangerous creatures. You know, they're enormous. They're three-ton mammals. They can be 15 feet in length. They're, they're just extraordinary animals. And obviously very difficult to move, so they were just left. Um, and, of course, Hacienda is 60 miles east of Medellin. You know, you're out in the countryside. And for a while, they sort of stayed in the compound. Eventually, they're you know, there's like, you, you see it in the documentary, there's some very thin barbed wire around some of the area where the hippos were. But of course, for a three-ton animal, that's not much of a deterrent. And what happens is, um, as younger males grow up and grow into sexual maturity, the adult males drive them out of the herd. So what we think is, you know, that's really what drove these animals out of Hacienda Napolis and into the Magdalena River. Uh, which is very easy to um, access from Hacienda-Napolis. And, and so once... Uh-huh. No, go ahead. So four of them get into the rivers and waterways. Then what happens? And then, so, and of course they're multiplying. You know, one of the extraordinary things about these hippos, you know, they are uh, on the threatened list in in Africa. Um so now, you know, you have the species that's struggling in its home continent. It comes to Columbia, and, you know, what do, what do hippos need to thrive? They need water. They need grass, right? These are vegetarian creatures. Um, and you have that in abundance in Colombia. So coincidentally, Escobar brought them in to a habitat that's absolutely perfect for them to dominate. So you've got these four hippos. They started breeding. They have young males. The young males get driven out, they move into the Magdalena River, and they start moving north into the jungles of Colombia. It's just the most extraordinary story. It started with four hippos. Now there are more than 40. And, and in, the, in the near term, there's no reason that population won't continue to grow. So what happens? Move up. Yeah, so what happens now? Because, I mean, not only, I mean, most of Latin America, I would think, is a relatively fertile population center for hippos, right? I mean, it's warm. That's right. They have access to lots of uh, of, of grass. There are no predators, certainly. I wouldn't think that are right. uh, able to take advantage of them. So the people, you said early in our conversation, have kind of fallen in love with these hippos. What happens going forward? I mean, in natural you know yeah. habitat, they would continue to propagate. We've gone from four to forty. We could go from four hundred to mm-hmm. you know from forty to four hundred, four hundred to uh, four thousand. Like, where does this end, and That's how right. do you stop it? Or is this going to be one of the maybe the most lasting legacy of Pablo Escobar is that he brought hippos <laughs> to Latin America? Oh, I love that. That that could very well be the case. And that is the the big question now in Colombia. I met this incredible uh, Colombian wildlife uh, vet and 
uh, Carlos Valderrama, who we spent a lot of time with in northern Colombia. And this is a big question for Colombia now because these are dangerous creatures, you know, um, and primarily they pose a threat to fishermen, right? So hippos, you know, they're not meat eaters. This isn't like lions being, you know, set loose. Um, hippos attack if they feel cornered or surprised. But the problem is anyone who's seen, you know, a photo of a hippo, they love, they spend most of their time in water and often just with their, you know, eyes and ears sticking out. So it's surprisingly easy to sneak up on a hippo or not realize it's there and that can provoke attacks. So in northern Colombia, some of the fishing villages now, um, in fact, we went, you know, we sort of went and traveled up the Magdalena and River and went into some of these fishing villages to talk about their experiences with hippos, and it's just so bizarre. Um, you know, we met a fisherman uh, who had grown up in Colombia. You know, his father and grandfather had been fishermen, but, you know, they didn't have to deal with hippos. <laughs> yes. And, you know, you know, I mean, it's just so preposterous. And, in fact, he had been um, charged by a hippo. No one has been killed um, by these hippos or hurt by them, but there have certainly been charges and, and narrow misses. So one of the questions is, you know, what are, what are we going to do? They do, you know, they do pose um, a threat to people. There's no way around that. Um, and, you know, one thing that had, you know, there was a village, uh, as I mentioned, where they had some problems, and the decision was made to try to kill some of the males. But it, it was just too big a risk. And they, um, you know, the military went in. They hired a big game hunter. Um, the idea was to cull one of the animals. This was in 2009. And they shot one of the animals. Um and they took an unfortunate photo of all these soldiers around this slain hippo. And, and that's what sort of became viral in Colombia and really put the cocaine hippos on the map in that country. And I think people were very upset to see it hurt uh, and killed. And they got, you know, there's all this backlash. I went and interviewed the environmental minister, Carlos Costa. Um, he was the environmental minister at the time. And he was, he was incredibly generous to spend time with me and chat about it. And he said, you know, the decision to coal was made because fishermen felt they were in danger. Um, and, you know, these are poor communities and that were, you know, very worried. And they never expected the backlash throughout the country. So where does that backlash come from? And what they suspect is, you know, listen, in South America, you don't have big charismatic mammals like this. Um, so the feeling, you know, people are just so fascinated by them and so interested in them and didn't want to feel like they were just being guns down. When the animal was killed, they did, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, necropsy of the, you know, the, uh, of the, of the hippo. I don't think it's an autopsy when it's an animal. I think it's a necro, necropsy. Um, and when they looked at this animal after it was killed, you know, they found 22 caliber bullets in its head. They found shotgun pellets. So the animal had been shot at by locals, whether it was because he was attacking them or people were afraid of it and trying to kill it. There, there, there had clearly been tension there. And how to solve this tension of the fascination of these animals and not wanting to just, you know, gum them down versus the danger they do pose is a question that, you know, I think in Colombia they're still wrestling with. After the outrage of the first animal being killed, um, they, they stopped the culling. Uh, and since then, no more, uh, you know, no one has been killed by these animals. Um, so I think there's sort of an uneasy, an uneasy peace, you know, for now. This is pretty amazing stuff. We're going to keep talking to Jennifer. She'll stick with us here, I believe. But wouldn't you love a bigger tax refund? Tax layer highest rated for maximum refund, so you have more cash to spend on whatever the heck you want. This tax season, go out and slay it. Max your refund at taxslayer.com. Let me know what you think of Jennifer and Cocaine Hippos so far. Reaching out on Twitter at Clay Travis.
We're talking to Jennifer Heil, Cocaine Hippos, National Geographic Wild is her uh, is her movie, a documentary. When I think about Columbia, I think about two things. And this is, I don't know if uh, North, individuals, I think about cocaine, obviously, is one of the first things I think about. I think about, but individuals, the only two that I can name off the top of my head and tell you stories about are Pablo Escobar and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And there's something mm-hmm. about a magical realism element to suddenly these hippos <laughs> showing up, right? You can imagine Garcia yeah. Marquez starting off one of his short stories or novels with an opening line about, you know, the hippos came to the village of, you know, whatever that village was when, you know, main character was 53 years old, right? Like, I mean, that's that's like the definition of yeah. a sentence that Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for people who are familiar with his fiction, uh, Nobel Prize winning fiction, I should say, would start off his stories with. Incredible writer. Uh, to what extent... Is that you kind of hit on there this big, you know, sort of substantial mammal that people in South America don't have a lot of access to, but there's also a certain magic to a hippo. And and what I mean by that is right. they are often underwater, as you said. You don't necessarily know that they are there. When you went down these rivers, was it easy to see a hippo, or were they like many animals that you may go and seek of and not necessarily see, right? That's one of the exciting things if you mm-hmm. are a hunter about being a hunter is you may go out and spend a week and not even see the animal that you are hunting. That makes the anticipation, the trepidation, the excitement so much higher. Was it easy to find these animals? Like when you got in your boat, were you easily able to locate them? Or could you have spent days looking for them and not actually seen a hippo? Yeah, we know it's funny. When we started this film, that was one of my big concerns. Like, oh my gosh, am I actually going to see these creatures? Um, so, uh, you know, the answer is yes and no in that when you go to House Indianapolis, you can see these creatures. It was much easier to find them than I expected. Um, there is still a, you know, a small herd living there, um, you know, of about 20 animals. So you can go. They're relatively easy to find. One of the things that um, House Indianapolis has done now with the resident herd is they, they feed them on a daily basis, um, you know, sugar cane and grass. And the reason they do that is, as I mentioned earlier, they're trying to grapple with what to do with these creatures who are so amazing and magical, but also dangerous. And they thought, well, let's try to keep as many here as we can. And one of the ways they've done that is they're just trying to make it a safe, easy place for hippos to live. They do feed them on a daily basis. So those are incredibly easy to find. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, two of the original females are still alive. Hippos can live, you know, 40 to 50 years uh, in captivity. They've lived to 60. Um, so those animals are relatively easy, you know, to see. Absolutely. Uh, I was also interested in the animals, right? So what? So why leave if, if you're in a safe place and, you know, it's good habitat and you're being fed, there's no predators, you know, why leave? And I mentioned earlier, you know, young males do get kicked out of the herd by adult males. So they are forced out. Those are the animals that are slowly moving up the Magdalena River. And they're much harder to find. So... Um, you know, I did go to one of the fishing villages that's known to have a resident hippo in the area. We were not able to find it. We interviewed a fisherman who, um, is, you know, dealt with the animal. Um, but as we moved up, they weren't easy to find, you know, they were not easy to find. And in fact, one of my favorite, I, I love the tie you made to, you know, magical realism. Um, because, you know, this story had so many bizarre twists and turns. And one of them, we went to a cattle ranch, um, that has, you know, essentially almost a resident hippo um, <laughs> living with these cattle. And, and you know, Carlos Valderrama, the wildlife vet who works, you know, the government is hired to work with these animals. I said, you've got to be kidding me. And the theory is, now keep in mind, 
hippos are social creatures, right? You know, they live in these big herds. You know, anyone who's seen kind of a photograph in the wild of Africa, they are not solitary creatures. So you can imagine these poor young males get driven out of the herd, and they go and look at females. They go and look of building their own herd. And, of course, right now, that's almost impossible to find. Um, and so this particular hippo goes and lives among the cattle, which are, you know, big creatures and in a big herd, and he sort of lives among them. These cattle are kind of let loose on this large ranch at night, and the hippo hangs out with them. And then the cattle ranchers come in the morning to herd the animals. And, you know, I interviewed them, and they said, you know, the hippo leaves us be. He kind of stays in the water. All the cattle come out. You just see the hippo out there in the water, its eyes just above, and now he's alone again for the rest of the day. Um, you know, it's just, you know, these stories were just so unbelievable. Um but yet, so, you know, they, they do get more difficult as you go uh, more remote to find, but, but not the stories of them. Boy, the stories loom large wherever you go. This is amazing. Like, I'm utterly fascinated by this. Okay, so uh, we're talking with Jennifer Heil. She's uh, Cocaine Hippos, National Geographic Wild. Her documentary, Pablo Escobar's Escaped Hippos. So here's the big question, I think, probably a lot of people listening, uh, other than how in the world did Clay Travis end up talking about Pablo Escobar's hippos for an hour on the show today? But a big question, I think, is natural. If you look at predation in, uh, in the uh, continent of Africa, where hippos are native, it is very common, given how territorial hippos are, for people. Like you said, they're vegetarians, mm-hmm. but hippos will occasionally attack. And in fact, hippos kill more people in Africa than uh, crocodiles do. That surprises a lot of people because they think of them as kind Mm -hmm. of a lovable, cuddly animal. And in reality, they are very vicious and territorial when uh, when they feel threatened. What happens when or if they kill people in Colombia? Does that change the kind of tenuous peace between hippo and man? We all think so. You know, when I was interviewing people in Colombia, that is the looming question. You know, how do you prevent an attack? on people, which is an almost impossible, you know, thing to um, protect against, you know, eventually. And, you know, what will happen when um, a human is is hurt or even killed? And, you know, more than likely, you know, that, that will dramatically affect how, how people feel about these creatures. Um, you know, for now, you know, why haven't there been attacks, right? This is one of the most dangerous animals in Africa. Why haven't there been? And, you know, the, the best guess that, that people there have is the population isn't that big yet, right? You can imagine, you know, they think there's 40, maybe 50 now um, in, you know, these huge jungles of northern Colombia. These animals are not by nature aggressive in that, as we were saying, you know, they're vegetarians. They're not out hunting um, in the way that a lion might be. So conflict comes, as you rightly mentioned, because they're ter- they're, they are fiercely territorial, so for now, I think there's few, um, for now, the population isn't so big that they're constantly having conflict with humans in the way you see in Africa. And I think for now, that's what's protecting them. How long that will protect them is anyone's guess. Um, you know, I, I mentioned at Hacienda-Napolis, as, as Colombia tries to grapple with how to care for these creatures and also protect the people that live in the area, you know, they're feeding the hippos at Hacienda-Napolis to try to keep as many there, uh, you know, as, as they can. And it was interesting. Um, they have also separated two of the new calves and, uh, from the herd on Hacienda-Napolis and are uh, raising them among people, which I think is a really interesting experiment. I went and, and met these two little calves, Waco and Matilda, 
and they're being raised. You know, again, one of the sort of magical, strange twists to this story, they're being bottle-fed and raised by humans, and the experiment is to see if they're raised by humans, will they accept people um, and perhaps not view them as threats in the same way? Is there some potential there? But it's hard to imagine that really scaling up. Um, but that is, you know, another way that they're they're trying to to just think, you know, how can we how can we live with these animals and respect these animals and also protect, you know, fishermen in the area. Jennifer, this has been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, people who want to watch this documentary that you did, Cocaine Hippos, where can they find it? And if they've enjoyed listening to you, are you active anywhere on social media? Can they reach out and say thanks for spending time with us this morning? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm still in the wildlife game. I'm the uh, executive producer now of an organization called OceanX, and we do all kinds of ocean um, documentaries. So you can find OceanX online if you're looking for me. Uh, it's just Jennifer Heil on Instagram. So uh, very easy to find. Um, you know, the, the film itself in full is not... Um, online but i might have to reach out to national geographic wild now and say hey should we <laughs> should we get more of it online but there are certainly excerpts um on youtube um that people can find outstanding and i'm so yeah no you were phenomenal this has been outstanding i know how busy you are with all the other things that you're working on as well but this is an amazing story and i know our audience will love it and appreciate the time that you spent with us well um thank you so much for having me it, it was it is such an extraordinary story, and I was, I'm just so thrilled to, get, it, to uh, get the chance to talk about it again. So thank you so much for having me on your show. And thank you. That's Jennifer Heil. I would encourage you to check it out. Check her out on Instagram, and Cocaine Hippos is the documentary now. Consider yourself educated. You can win some bar bets as you talk about Pablo Escobar's hippos from his 5,000-acre Hacienda Napoles. Thank you so much. Thank you. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bed 365 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.